you know, we all know those people who run away from feelings of sadness, don't they? And they, I understand why they do it, because I think I used to do it. It feels uncomfortable. It feels sort of intrusive. And they don't want to watch sad films. They don't want to listen to sad music. They don't want to hear anything sad. They don't cry. I think what I realised having lost my sister is that I couldn't do that anymore. Because by running away from sadness, I was running away from her. And that felt insulting to her memory. Welcome back to series four of How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The paperback version of How To Be Sad, The Key To Happiness is out on January the 20th. You can pre-order it now and I'd love to hear what you think. In the meantime, please join us as each week a very special guest shares their own story of how to be sad well. Emily Dean is a writer, radio presenter and podcaster. When Emily lost her sister to cancer, her world caved in. Within three years, both her parents had died too. She felt as though she'd never be able to move on with such grief. But then along came a shih tzu called Ray and some surprising ways to keep going and find joy again. So welcome Emily Dean to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. And I've got my dog Raymond by my side, who I've just introduced you to. And he is possibly my number one antidote to sadness, but I'm sure we'll get on to him. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the, the backstory to Ray is is quite heartrending. And I would love to talk about some of the ways you've handled sadness, but perhaps we could start at the beginning, um, the significance of dogs and dog families and, and growing up for anyone who hasn't read your story. Tell me about your relationship with your sister growing up. Well, my sister and I, she was two years older than me and we were incredibly close. And a lot of people I know say they're close to their siblings, but I I sort of felt in some ways we had a bond that was really deepened and strengthened by a couple of factors. It was growing up in a family of sort of artsy bohemians, really, and we were travelling a lot. And I think my sister represented more than just a sibling. She represented home. She was my family, you know, she was constant. And sometimes with my parents, fabulous as they were, I suppose you wouldn't call them practical, reliable people. Whereas I just always knew it was my sister that, that I would reach out for. You know, I had, she had this, which I've spoken about before, but she had the yellow case and I had the pink case that we would put all our sort of dolls in to travel around the world. <laughs> And when I saw that yellow case, that, that just represented safety. And so she was everything to me, really. And we had a shorthand, like a lot of siblings do. And the world kind of made sense with her in it. That's a lovely way of putting it. And and tell me more about your family. Um, the descriptions are sort of opening the fridge and they're just being caviar and champagne and not much else. Very vivid. Well... I should hasten to add, caviar and champagne, all entirely bought on credit. And there were often angry men turning up at our house, <laughs> demanding bills be paid. So, yeah, my parents were, my dad was was an arts reporter for a BBC show called Late Night Lineup, 
in the sort of 60s and 70s. And my mum was an actor, although she didn't work a lot, bless her. And we had this thing where she'd always say, get off the phone, my agent could be trying to call. And my dad would say, yes, but he never does. Um, So I think it's interesting. I don't know whether that was to do with the time they were born in, but I think, you know, they were sort of bright young things in the 60s. And there was this, I suppose there was, they had a certain degree of entitlement, I guess, you know, to the lifestyle that they should be living. And they would go to, my mum particularly would go to Fortnum and Mason's. And I remember thinking, hang on, that family down the road, he's a really successful accountant and they just go to M&S for their food. Like it, it did occur to me occasionally that we were perhaps living beyond our means, but it was, there were a lot of dinner parties. The house was just filled with cigarette smoke and bon vivers and anecdotes and, you know, red wine stains everywhere. Those sort of structural things that you have in place in traditional family life and what I call a dog family, we didn't really have that. So we didn't have bedtimes. We didn't, we would stay up at dinner parties and we'd sort of learnt to open bottles of wine quite young and, you know, make conversation. And my dad would say, oh, can you please sit next to Michael Foote, who was at that time the leader of the opposition, and can you look after him? And I think I was about seven at the time. So... (laughs) It just felt normal, as I'm sure your family experience did too. You just don't know any different. But yeah, my mum, I remember a child, my mum just didn't really understand the concept of that you had to wake children up for a start to get them to school. And it was traditional to serve them breakfast. So we didn't really have breakfast. And we soon realised that we'd be hungry if we didn't eat anything in the morning. So we'd go into the fridge and I remember eating canapes one day. It was from the dinner party. We'd just eat those. And a girl, I did go to school and a girl said, you've got black on your teeth. And I realised it was caviar from a blini that was at the dinner party. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a sort of, you know, rarefied, wealthy life. It was just a particular kind of artsy bohemian at that period in time. And my parents were also, particularly my dad, they would not talk down to us. They would talk very much to us like, we were adults, essentially. There were no boundaries in that sense. And so if you would say, why is granny being horrible to me? My mum would say, I've told you that's because she's on amphetamines, darling. So in some ways, which I'm sure we'll get onto, because it's sort of linked with that whole thing. I think that truthfulness, I'm quite grateful for that now. You know, we weren't shielded from truth, from, from life, really. And if your sister represented home, I wonder what role you had in that family. Oh, that's really interesting. I think my sister, in our sort of family script, because I'm of the belief, and I don't know about you, Helen, but I've started reading your wonderful book, which I had a copy of, which is absolutely brilliant. How to be sad, it's called, isn't it? And I saw a lot of similarities in some ways in our in our lives and our family structures. And I feel that most families do operate without realising it on a script, essentially, and everyone plays their part and you don't realise it. And before long, you're like an old actor who's been in the mousetrap for 30 years just saying the same lines. And it's only when something happens like tragedy, like grief or someone gets therapy (laughs) that that suddenly that changes and you're not just spouting lines. And I suppose in my family, if we go back to the original draft, the screenwriter's draft, the characters were set up so that I was sort of the 
slightly high maintenance diva trying to pull focus I think I was naughty I was difficult I was loud and my dad was sort of quite absent in some ways but like most family structures in those time at the in that time sort of revered and all-knowing and all-seeing and and my mother was um sort of like a stage manager trying to control us all we were I always said we were like a fam we were like a sort of cast of touring players we'd turn up to people's houses do our bit perform my sister and I performed from a very young age you know I knew in dinner parties that instinctively I was never quite myself Helen because I'd know right we're going to the bank managers or the accountants or those posh people who we owe money to so I have to be posh and polite and then we're going to those slightly eccentric actors so I'll tell funny stories so I, I was very chameleon like that was child of performers I guess and my sister was very much the sort of she was kind and she was gentle and she was sort of held on a pedestal really and she deserved to be on that pedestal but I only realized later in life we would speak about this and I think she had the sense you realize that sometimes being the golden child it comes with its own pressures doesn't it yes yes and you speak very movingly about feeling that sort of that otherness and and the shape-shifting and I was really moved by when you're talking about your glamorous neighbour Lindsay DePaul who showed you almost another way of being I wish I'd had a Lindsay DePaul this sounds amazing (laughs) tell us about her do you know what's interesting Helen I think it's only in later life and this sometimes happens doesn't it that we realise We actually don't realise quite how influential certain people are on us. Until you get older and you're able to view your life with perspective and you're watching the sort of director's cut thinking, oh, yes, that person, that character was incredibly pivotal. And she was, as you say, this fabulously, I mean, glamour to the degree that I don't even think people like that exist anymore. She was a pop star called Lindsay DePaul. She changed her name because that's what you did in the 70s. If you were called Lindsay Rubens, you called yourself De something. So she became De Paul. And she was five foot, four foot 11. And she had waist length, long blonde hair. She had a beauty spot that she'd paint on. She would have, she wore designer dresses. I always used to say she smelt of just luxury and expensive scent. And... She had a a couple of hits in the 70s and she dated a lot of famous men as well. But what was interesting to me and why I think she was such a big influence on me is that, you know, she was so unlike any of the other women that I'd come across in that she, she was very independent and she was unapologetic about it. Even though I grew up in the kind of family that was pretty liberal, you know, and and feminist in certain ways, I suppose the cultural conditioning of the time in the 70s and 80s when I grew up, and I don't know if this was the same for you, was to view women who lived alone over a certain age with a slight suspicion almost. You know, it was kind of, what's wrong with her? She couldn't get a man. And to meet Lindsay at that point in my life when I was about eight or nine and to see, it suddenly occurred to me, oh, she's happy living like this. This is a choice because she's rich and she's beautiful and she's sort of, running her own life and she would have these boyfriends that would come and she dated a, a famous movie star a guy called James Coburn who was in The Magnificent Seven and you know it was the original tough guy cowboy and it was interesting that even when she was with him 
there wasn't a sense of her sacrificing her identity in order to be with him. That's so powerful to have have seen that at an early age. And yes, when you talk about when she broke up with James Coburn, she was not lesser. It just never occurred to me, also being from a not-dog family, <laughs> the idea that you could aim for anything that was an independent. I always thought you know, the goal was marriage and kids. That's really formative to, to see an example of a, of a life that is aspirational, that isn't following that that mould. But it's interesting because I suppose, I don't know how it felt for you, I'm interested to know, because for me, even though I was getting these influences, it's actually only in later life that the importance of having Lindsay and in my life as as a, as a role model, I suppose, I sort of think about it much more now because I think what happens is that you still do, it's inevitable, you get caught up in just the ideas around you a bit more, don't you? And it's, I certainly felt with her, there were a couple of things that really stuck in my head that, you know, she would say to me and my sister, and this would have been, you know, in the early 80s, when this wasn't particularly something that was that was said to girls that often, um, young women. She just said, I bought my own house, so no man can ever tell me what to do in it. And you must do the same. And I did buy my own house. <laughs> And whether that's because of her, I don't know. But I think I, my mum did that to a certain extent. She would always say, similar to your situation, where I know your parents split up and your mum, you know, your circumstances changed, didn't you? And I really liked, I I'm started your book, but I, I really identified with you talking about living in the sort of home counties with the kids with the swimming pools and the... The really rich kids, yes. Yeah. Yes, kids with tennis courts. How does that change your character? What impact does that have on you? I'm interested. Well, it's very much... I mean, I had a scholarship, so I went to a private school and I'd be picked up from a childminder because my mum worked and no one else's did and the childminder would pick me up in the white Porsche and take me back to the house with the tennis courts and the swimming pools. And then I'd get picked up by my mum when she'd finished her job as a secretary and we'd go back to our little house. It's just an odd... It's it's Yes, same, you don't quite feel a part of either world and you don't quite fit into into either world but it's fascinating I mean it makes it for a good future as as a writer and as an interviewer you're you're observing other people yes but it's not massively grounding I think you're right and I certainly relating to that similarly I was we went to private school and it's always tricky talking about this because it sounds like you're saying poor me I went to the private school but (laughs) but it is it is just a weird experience because being, I suppose, the poorest kid at the private school, you're absolutely right. It gives you that sense of difference. And in, I mean, I lied, Helen. That's how I dealt with it. And I don't think I'm naturally a liar, but I think I felt I had no option. I would lie. I told this girl I would lie about our house. I would never let anyone come to the house. And I would say, one of the girls said, uh, how many bedrooms have you got? which is an odd question, but the the 80s were so materialistic, wasn't it? And those things really mattered. Like, what car does your dad drive? And I think I lied and said a BMW because that's the car that seemed I'd seen my friend's dad's have. And my mother had a yellow Mini Metro. And I used to make a park it around the corner. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Which is so ridiculous. And I feel great shame over that now. And it's so not who I am. And I increasingly, I think I'm really proud of my parents' values, that they weren't obsessed by cars and money and things that, do you know what I mean? My parents 
It used to frustrate me that if we did ever get any money, my dad would buy a sort of first edition of a John le Carre book or something, or, you know, they'd spend their money on experiences and theatre tickets and friends coming over. And now I think they had it right. Those are the things that matter. Yes. And actually, they say in all happiness studies, don't they, it's experiences rather than stuff. So they were ahead of their time. I, don't, I feel as though I, I knew a little from your story from your excellent radio show with Frank Skinner that that I was expecting when I read your book, Everyone Died So I Got a Dog, which everyone should read, that I knew that there was loss in there. But it I didn't quite expect it to start so early. Your first experience of death was your grandma dying mm-hmm. and you saw her. Is that right? It was It's very vivid, your description of the smell of Charlie perfume and walking in there. Tell me about that and how old were you when you when you found her again I think looking back on that it's really interesting you should say that because a friend of mine who'd read my book Daisy and she'd read um who was my producer at the time on the Frank Skinner show and you know you know you show it you know what it's like as a writer you show it to someone you love and trust and you know is basically going to be incredibly supportive and make you feel good which she did and I can remember she was really she mentioned it and she was shocked and she said I I couldn't work out what she was shocked by. And it seemed that she was shocked, if I'm honest, that I'd been exposed to that, you know, that scene and that there hadn't been adults. And it just shows you, Helen, how immersed in my family structure I was, that it was the first time in my entire life that it had ever occurred to me that maybe a child, you know, I mean, I I say I was a child, I would have been, you know, a teenager, but a young teenager, and I shouldn't have been the first one in to discover my grandmother's body, maybe. An adult should have intervened. And I suppose by that point, my dad had left and it was me, my sister and my mum. And it was it was more a sort of girls gone wild reality show, I described it as, you know, where we were sort of siblings almost, the three of us. So I think that idea of there being an adult running the show had just gone out the window. But yeah, my grandmother was really close to us and she was this incredible character. She had five husbands and... She was sort of quite an interesting role model in her own way, you know, that she was, again, fiercely independent. And she was so strong and sort of defiant. And I remember a man once broke into her flat and he ended up running. The neighbour said this man was screaming, crying, because she'd need him in the groin. <laughs> she was, wow. she never, I mean, there was, she was an extraordinary woman. And she married one of my I always get confused. I think he was my fifth grandfather, who I sort of grew up with. Who was, I know, I always say... What, what a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> who was called um, Adebayo, Bio, Grandpa Bio. And he was from Lagos. And he came to, to live with her. And I was sort of incredibly fond of him. But then we would just get told, oh, Grandpa Bio is not coming back. And we'd say, why? And again, my parents, not having the ability to sort of um, soften information distressing information said oh well he's a bigamist and I said what's a bigamist and they sort of you know they would just give us a clear explanation and it was but yeah so my grandmother she eventually really reunited with my mum's original father as we used to call him because it got so confusing calling <laughs> the original father <laughs> like a rapper name who's <laughs> <laughs> the OG so yeah, but she was living on her own and she was, you know, and she had called us. She would she would look after us quite regularly when my mum, you know, when the divorce got a bit, things got a bit tricky and we spent a lot of time with her. She was very young. So, yeah. So we just, we went round and I, 
we'd had the neighbour had said she'd she'd not heard from her and there'd been no answer. So we knew something was up, you know, and the neighbour had said, I I I think something's wrong. So we opened the door to my grandmother's flat and my mum just said, I can't go in, you go in. So I opened the door. And I think we sort of thought, I think I sort of knew she was not going to be alive. I don't know. I think we all knew. Yeah, and I just, she was lying there and she died and she was on the sofa and it did haunt me for a while, actually, just seeing a dead body, I suppose, and then a dead body of someone you love and someone you'd spoken to on the phone at seven o'clock the night before. You know, we'd had a conversation, there'd been no ramp. So my sister and I just sort of, we kind of, and then I said, I think we better ring her friends. So I remember just sitting on the, in the hall, just calling all her friends, telling them. And I never got that image out of my mind, really, Helen, just seeing, you know, the physical things of someone you love dead. And now, you know, I mean, without being too sick about it, it's like I'm a past master at it. You know, I've seen, I've said goodbye to a lot of people I love and I've been at someone's final moments with them. And, but that was, that, yeah, it was quite traumatic, I think. And a lot of responsibility at that age as well. Yeah, I think so. And again, not something I realised at the time. And it just felt so normal for my family structure that that everything like that was, that there, there was never someone stepping in. There was never an adult saying, I'm going to sort this out. You know, if the, it, it similarly, I mean, similarly, it's a very different thing, obviously death. But let's say, for example, if the bailiffs turned up, there was never a sense of an adult saying, let me deal with this or we would, my sister and I would get the door to them sometimes and sort of get rid of them, or you know, so it was more like a commune. It's interesting as well that you learnt charm from an early age as a way to diffuse situations like this. And as a, I mean, it turned, it is a very useful life skill, but interesting. And your parents split up and that was, I imagine, incredibly challenging as it is for, for many of us. And you were close to your dad, so you, you, it must have been hard. You must have missed having him around. Yeah, I think in every family, there's always a sense of one child, possibly if if it's a, a two child family or three child family, you know, you have a closer bond, perhaps with one parent. And I think in my case, it was definitely my dad, I, I like to sort of please him and perform and use long words. And I think I'd sort of worked out that my sister's safe was she was in seat 1A in first class. And I was never going to be able to get into that seat. So I'd up for a nice business seat, you know, with my dad. <laughs> and we were wired a bit more similarly, maybe. We were very close. So when, yeah, my parents, when they split up, something you experienced, and, and it just felt very odd then, didn't it? It wasn't that common as it is now. Yes, and there was a stigma. And certainly for the, for the mother who had been left, in inverted commas, is always... yeah. It was like you just felt a bit broken being part of that sort of family structure. And so the thing that was really tough was when I was about, I was 12, 13, and we just got back. And my parents had split up, but they were still a bit sort of codependent. And my mum, he would still come around for lunch every sort of Sunday. And he was just constantly in our lives. And he'd come around one Sunday and he just, I always remember he asked, my sister had been to a Chagall exhibition and he'd asked to borrow the catalogue and... He just said, oh, I'll call you in the week. And then the next day we got back from school and he'd left these, put these notes through the door and he'd gone to live in New Zealand. He just said, I couldn't tell you because I knew it would be too hard. And, but, you know, I'm just, I need to do this for me and for work and whatever. So that was tough because I didn't see him for a, a long time. 
again, I only realised in retrospect what a huge, just how that felt like such a personal rejection. And of course it wasn't, but I did feel it at the time. And my way of dealing with it back then was to become, I think, just very defensive and brittle and put on armour. And handily enough, Madonna popped up around that time, which gave me someone to copy. I used to see the way she would, you know, she seemed to deal with problems just by saying, screw you and called everyone a mofo. And I thought, oh, well, that works for me. I'll just be that person. But when you say that, when you describe what happened out loud, I mean, you say brittleness, but that that is, I mean, does sound quite extraordinary and outrageous. Do you do you now sort of recognise that was not OK to, to not tell your child? Do you know what? I think, again, it's really strange, Helen, and I don't know if you've experienced this with your family, details of your family experience, but do you find sometimes it's only by other people's reactions that you understand sort of the enormity of something or how it feels slightly an unusual way to treat a kid? And I think in my dad's case, I think he just... It was a, it was a strange situation because I think he was someone who just bolted. And I, and I think that was, I now know, that he always felt that was his only option was to run away. And he would constantly do this. And you probably know people like this. I've certainly encountered them, that every time things get too much, they just bolt because it just feels easier than dealing with it. And I think that's what he did. And I think also... It was tough, though. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And my sister and I became even closer as a result of that. And I really felt shame, I think, over it, which is ridiculous because I had nothing to feel ashamed about. But it was like that sense of being left, being abandoned. I have to remind myself of it now. It's only through, you know, years of therapy that I realise how much it echoes throughout my life. So if any friendship ends or a professional relationship I think, what's this? Why am I reacting like this? And it is, if you have a, I suppose, an emotional injury like that, at, at that age when your frontal lobe's not developed and you're you're still forming who you are as a person, it almost gets um, imprinted, doesn't it, in there somewhere? Yes, and I was very interested to read about your your entry into journalism, which is similar to mine in that way of um, it, it sounds good when, pe- when parents say it. And for me as well, it was very much, well, maybe my dad will see my name in print and therefore, you know, I will, I have been left, but I will somehow penetrate that way. And then also that sort of business class, like life on a Ryanair budget, the luxury you get to sample, the life that is not your own. Did that feel... Uh, like a sort of sense of acceptance. You you did incredibly well. We've worked with similar people, I think, at, at Instyle and I was at Marie Claire. D- did that feel like you sort of found a tribe when you got into journalism? I'm fascinated that you say that because it's interesting that we were both those kids at the private school that never felt quite good enough or like we had a right to be there. So how those patterns will continue. So in a way, you know, when you're staying and you're sent as a journalist, to you experience a taste of that life, but it's not your life, really. Do you know what I mean? And I think how you will always continue repeating those patterns without even realising it. It's only now that I see them in context and I think, oh, actually, that's interesting, isn't it? That I chose to do a job where there was a certain element of pretense in a way involved. I was pretending to be... You know, I was staying in the Ritz-Carlton. People would look at me and think, oh, she's a 
lucky her, look at her life. So it was all about how things seemed, you know, that people would look at me in this posh uniform and think, you know, not knowing about the yellow mini metro and the letters coming through the door saying I've gone to live in New Zealand and the five grandfathers, you know, one of whom was a bigamist. So, um, but yeah, in answer to your question, I think what it really taught me doing that was I made some lovely friendships and how people had always said to me, men mainly if I'm honest, oh, don't work in women's magazines, they're bitchy. Women are really horrible when they work together. And of course I was at a women, women's magazine when all these multiple losses occurred and the support I got was just extraordinary, you know. All those women were just incredible and I felt so nurtured and cared for and they knew what to do and what to say. And I remembered thinking of that man and I thought, you're wrong, you're so wrong. <laughs> it's a weird thing because I think it was great for me and my confidence. I think earlier on in my career, Helen, I think I possibly was never really cut out to be a journalist, if I'm honest. And I think it was completely the wrong job for me simply because I think it does require a certain amount of dedicated concentration and you have to be quiet for long periods, which is something <laughs> I really struggle with. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I'd, I, only, I'd be in offices and people would slam out the doors and go, oh, and then I think, oh, do I talk a lot? I think I talk too much. <laughs> and that's partly from growing up in a family with performers and partly just because that's that's in my genetic makeup, I guess, is that, you know, I'm quite noisy, an extrovert. And I think I didn't, again, it was another thing of not quite fitting in. You know, I like the idea of it, but the social aspect of it I liked and I was great at that. And I managed to kind of get by you can get by. It's funny. I interviewed Rob Beckett, who I adore for my um, Me podcast. Too. He's so great. Oh, he's he's great. He's a really wise, interesting man. So smart. And mm -hmm. he was Rob was telling me how he'd worked. Um, I'm always fascinated by sort of comedians and people like that. How that worked for them being in a sort of work in you can't imagine Rob in an office like sitting there. Like. <laughs> and I said, how was that? And he Rob said something really interesting. He said, well, I think. The thing is, I had charm. So I could charm my way out of situations and I'd make mistakes, but I'd cover it with charm. And I sort of think that's what I did, Helen, that I kind of got by. I think the sort of slightly more, the bit that required actual work, I it was tricky for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's open plan offices. It's always tricky too. <laughs> And so you were, you were busy working as a journalist, which we know is occasionally glamorous and front row seats at Milan and then occasionally not so glamorous and feeling quite poor. And at the time, your sister Rachel had created for herself almost this, this dog family and had gone down the route of marriage and children. And can you tell me about, about how that felt, the, sort of, the, the differences in your, in your life paths at that stage? My sister got married. I mean, I think when you grow up in a family structure like ours where I say structure it's not really it wasn't really structure <laughs> um, but when you so Jackson Pollock yeah exactly when you have a family experience like ours you will tend to react one of two ways because I've learned now that you will always have a reaction to your family experience whether you're conscious of it or not and my sister's response my response was to be wild and commitment free and my sister's response was really to seek out 
sort of security and constancy, what she didn't have, which is uh, the far more sensible option. And she got married. You know, she hit all those beats at those sort of, you know, those beats at the time the chick lit novels told you you were meant to. And literally it was, you know, meet the man when you're 27 and then get married when you're 29, 30 and have the fabulous wedding. And she uh, is interesting. She then had a baby, you know, a year after. Yeah, so she she really did have, and she had the Farron Ball, and she bought this house, her and her husband, and they did it up from scratch, and it looked really beautiful. And then she had a second baby, Bertie. There was a bit of a gap between um, Mimi and Bertie. So at that point, she was yeah, she just she it seemed to me, and I I did sometimes feel what was interesting was that I never felt, and I've asked myself this question a lot, I never felt angry or bitter towards my sister. I never felt jealous. I never felt, why haven't I got that? And I think, you know, you'd be lying if you said you never felt that about anyone you'd ever encountered in your life. You know, of course you do. But I never felt it with my sister. And I, the only reason I can give for that is that she and I were so connected. We were almost like the same person. So I almost couldn't split up, split us enough to sort of think that's her experience. I felt her wedding day was sort of my wedding day. You know, I didn't feel like a bridesmaid. And she actually had to turn around to me and say, you know, you never got me a wedding present. Like, Why would I get you a wedding present? It was my special day. Yeah, because <laughs> I felt like it was my day. So you know? interesting. I, I spoke to the um, the twin, the doctor, Dr. Zahn van Tulliken, who said a similar thing, that everything that happens to his twin brother feels like it happens to him. So there's no envy, there's no rivalry. Mm. Um, so when, when Zahn van Tulliken got really ill, for Chris, it was like watching himself have his heart restarted because they're just that that close, close bond. If so it sounds similar, how interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? That you can't... I mean, I suppose the other side of it is that you then feel, when you get cross with yourself, you know, you see those characteristics and you think, oh, why am I being like that? Oh, it's not me being like that, it's my sister being <laughs> like that. But yeah, I... And she, that continued into, you know, adulthood and that period in our life that she was always the person I'd call she was the the constancy you know I rung her I remember once I mean it seems crazy looking back now Helen that I would think I was in my I must be in my early 30s and a man I always remember I was at a Channel 4 press event and a man had started saying to me must have been 32 he said you better hurry up you know you're going to get left on the shelf you better hurry up no one's going to want you he was grilling me about my love life and my, you know, did men want... And I just left and I was crying. And I rung my sister and I was... She was like, what's happened? What's happened? A man, a man just said I was going to get left on the shelf. And she said to me, oh, well, that's one way of hitting on you. Oh. And do you know what? And it only... She was just out like, and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, why would anyone take an interest in your private life? Come on, you're 32. He's married to the same woman since he was 18 or whatever, you know. But just having that perspective and being able to ring someone and be irrational. You know, you need someone in life that you can be irrational with and they're still there. And I don't, I feel that she was probably, I don't know. I can't speak for my parents. They're not here anymore. But I always felt she loved me so unconditionally and and the same and it's rare to get that isn't it yeah hugely special and so tell me about in 2011 at the end of 2011 she 
she got the diagnosis? Yeah, she just said uh, she was feeling a bit fluey and she just kept saying, I don't feel well, I don't feel myself. And her daughter, Bertie, was uh, 11 months old by that point. So I think she just put it down as you would to just having had a baby. No one feels great, you know, at that point. And it just, it was just so swift. It was so swift. And then suddenly she got diagnosed. This was all over Christmas just to make it, you know, extra special. And I remember telling friends, my sister's not well. I think they don't know what it is. And the doctor, you know, didn't know what it was. And then the next thing I knew she was in hospital. And then three weeks later, she was had died. And she was only diagnosed. We went for the hospital. She'd been in the hospital. They just kept giving her tests. And they said about a week after she'd been admitted, I guess it was about a week after she'd started feeling, getting those pains and things. And they told us and we they, we came in. I mean, at first I heard she had cancer and I was horrified. But I think there was that optimism that, you know, you think, well, come on, people beat cancer. I've seen these people with their pink ribbons going on these walks. It's going to be all right, you know. And, and then it's those degrees of, you know, that degree of sort of worrying information. And then it's like it's something to do with her liver. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound good. That's that That seems like you need that to function. You can't get it cut out, you know. And I was so ignorant about cancer. But then we got the diagnosis and they just said, the consultant just said, and I asked, I said, how, when they told us, I was so shocked. And again, it's interesting, Helen, I think, because I felt like I, like we were the same person. There was no separation between us. So when the doctor asked us, she said, I said, how long has she got? And it was me, my brother-in-law, and my mum sitting around the bed. And I suddenly remembered myself and I thought, this isn't my story. I don't, she might not want to know that. I had no right. And I did say, I'm really sorry. And Rach said, she just nodded at me, you know, as if to say, yeah, that's exactly what I want to know. And so the doctor just said, well, I can't, you can't predict that with certainty, but it's, it won't be more than three months. I, I doubt it will be. So, and as it turned out, it was, it was only three weeks, but I mean, that was so flooring for her and she was, she was incredible, you know. She really was my sister. She, did, but she just looked and she just said, "I've got two children. I, I can't." You know, it was just in her head. Yes, it was like, I haven't got time yeah. to do that. Yes. She just couldn't think like that. So, it became. It was a very weird experience. It's very weird and also vivid to me. You know, you have when I wrote the book, and I don't know if you've had this with writing, but non people who haven't written books, sometimes a couple of people have said, "How could you remember everything?" <laughs> And you just feel like saying, yeah, that's not a, something you're going to forget. You know, yes. I can remember. It takes up about half of your brain at any yeah. given time. Yeah, I can remember everything the consultant was wearing. The, you know, I just, everything. And so there was just this odd three-week period when, yeah, we were just, and then we were in the Marsden where she died eventually. We were just in the intensive care and I became very familiar with the ways of that and it just became the vigil you just go in and you'd wait and you'd hope she'd last another day and that's why even though with lockdown I struggled but equally I don't know it, there's a sort of odd similarity in some ways is this life being on hold the outside world is on hold and I'm okay with that because I sort of you sort of, you know, and in a sense, I felt that's like panic when life began again, because I thought, oh, it was like I was being in the cocoon again. It's like being on a plane, you know. <laughs> because it's familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really interesting. And you talk about really helpfully, I think, that the things that people can do 
that are actually useful to support someone when they're going through something like that. So not asking, just doing stuff. So people made food for you. They they took the kids on play dates, didn't they? And yeah. and offered practical support in a way that was helpful and didn't you have to think about it too much? I think so. And I really understand that people feel really helpless in a situation like that. And But there is something... You just learn when you've experienced it that saying, if there's anything I can do, is very different to, I've done this for you. And it's that difference that... Or even... What precisely can I do? And I and I think I think the main things are like you say it's practical help, but just checking in. You know, I've got um, Jimmy Carr's a, a friend of mine, and I'm not just name dropping. It's it's relevant. I'm mentioning <laughs> him for a reason because he has a big thing about just checking in. He says that he says on a text, you know, and especially if he knows you're sort of going through a tough time, he'll say just checking in. How's you? There's something. It's just that sense of a support network. It's like, I'm here for you. And I think that's what I tend to do. I've had friends who've been bereaved and people who've gone through tough times. You don't want to intrude. You don't want to... I've had a a friend who went through a difficult experience recently and I had that struggle. And I found myself going back into me pre-grief, which was, or pre-experience of multiple losses, of thinking, well, I won't disturb them. And then I thought, well, no, it's not disturbing someone to just quietly say, I'm thinking of you. I, that th- little gestures like that made such a difference. You know, a friend of mine, James, who was living in America and just this massive, vast tray of cupcakes turned up from, you know, Hummingbird or something. And it sounds so trivial, but actually it's not the cupcakes, is it? It's not. It's, it's basically saying you're loved. People are thinking of you. And that's what the people offering to cook meals, it's acts of service. That's how you show love, isn't it? And acts of service at a time like that are incredibly important. And I think the other thing that's been really important is having people who will still understand that even now, 10 years later, it still gets me on a, on a very regular basis that it's not over for me. It's over for them. I understand that because it was a terrible thing that happened to me. But it's not something that happened to me. It's sort of part of me. And it doesn't take much to trigger it, to be honest. I wondered that. I wondered how, and having spoken to people who have lost someone incredibly important to them, how you feel about other people even saying her name. Does that feel an imposition or is that sort of keeping her memory alive for you? Well, I feel... Because you lost, you lost a sibling, didn't you, when she was very yes. young? Yeah, but she was tiny, yeah. Yeah, but it's a loss, isn't it? And yeah. I think it's similar in some ways because it's a, a life not fully lived. And that's a different kind of grief, isn't it, I think? to it, There is a difference. I was very much aware of it because they all died, my sister and my parents, so close to each other. Just And I wasn't comparing them, like, giving one five stars, one three. That funeral wasn't as good. Not trip advice. No, exactly. The trip. But I was thinking how different that sense of mourning was, that at my sister's funeral, the sadness was just so overwhelming. There was a kind of a horror to it, because at my parents' both of my parents' funerals, people can not only, you know, can console you and you sort of want to hear those things. It's nice. They lived a good life. It's better they didn't suffer. They got to see their grandchildren. They got to see you do this. There's all that stuff. 
Whereas with a, a mother who's just had a, whose baby is one, there's nothing. There is nothing good to be taken from that. And and similarly with your sister, that's a life unlived. It's cruel and it's awful. So that stuff's tough. And I, I feel with my sister now, it's interesting. It's helped me a lot accept sadness, actually, because I've realised that I think previously I possibly was someone who would sometimes, you know, we all know those people who run away from feelings of sadness, don't they? And they I understand why they do it because I think I used to do it it feels uncomfortable it feels sort of intrusive and they don't want to watch sad films they don't want to listen to sad music they don't want to hear anything sad they don't cry I think what I realized having lost my sister is that I couldn't do that anymore because by running away from sadness I was running away from her and that felt insulting to her memory that my temporary discomfort was more important than the memory of her life, you know, that actually I wanted to honour those moments, which which I don't know if that makes sense, but I just felt, if I felt a wave of sadness, I tried to sort of think, oh, that's, this is my sister, like, this is what I'm experiencing, it's the memory of her and she's part of me now. And it really sort of helped me kind of feel kind of be less frightened of it and and give it a sort of benevolence, oddly, that I would feel, oh, this is my sister. This is what I'm I'm feeling. And because I love her and I'll I'll never forget her, she's so much wrapped up in me now that occasionally she's just coming up to say hello. That's a really interesting way of, yeah, because you love her. Yeah. And you will always love her. And sometimes I think it's her saying, hello. <laughs> right here. Hello. Um, have you forgotten? <laughs> I mean, I know it's been 10 years. I really do. I think it's her way of reminding me. And I just am able to sort of slightly embrace the sadness. I mean, when I say embrace it, obviously it's tough, but I'm able to accept the sadness and to associate those feelings. You know, if I sometimes it will be triggered by something quite small. It's a song. It's a movie. You know, I was movie came on over Christmas and I suddenly reminded me of watching it with her and then the next minute I was in floods of tears and in those instances I think well I can't really call up a friend and say I've, I've just been watching Ghostbusters <laughs> and when Ray Parker Jr said oh, I'm afraid of no ghosts I was crying you know because it reminded me of me you know, taping the charts but you know the thing is it's fine because it's still a shared memory even though she's not here it allows me to feel as if she is here in a way. And and she will always be there. And tell me then, not only did you have to try to keep going with this loss, but within the space of three years, you lost both your parents as well. Yeah. Which is a lot. You remarked that the, was it the vicar who sort of said, we must stop meeting like this? How, I mean, just to... You talk really honestly in a way that I think is hugely helpful for a lot of people about about going on antidepressants, about starting therapy and finding that helpful. But I know that there came a point where actually things things weren't helping and, and you felt like actually things were too much. You talk about calling the Samaritans mm. and, and times when you didn't feel you could you know, pick up the phone and call a friend or even tell your therapist stuff. How, how did you find a way to keep going at that point? Well, the Samaritans are great, aren't they? I mean, honestly, 
the service they do is extraordinary because it was so helpful just spit you know when you feel and I did feel my friends were quite shocked when I read that in the book and I and I felt that must have been tough for my friends actually because I know if I was close to someone and I read that it would be hard for me not to sort of not take it personally but to kind of feel well I feel awful. I feel awful that I didn't know you were going through that. When was it? I went to that party with you and you seemed fine. And But as we know, I'd always struggled up until that point anyway with the difference between being and seeming, if you like. Mm. And I always seemed fine. And because that was what I did, the idea of being sad and exposing that or just just felt too overwhelming, you know, and I, I felt shame, I think, over it, you know, that I like this idea that I had of me as the person dealing with grief. It was like, you're brave, you're strong, you're a trooper. How are you coping? I think I'd quite like it. And people would say, it's amazing how you're coping. You're made of strong stuff. And it made me feel suddenly that those were good things, that I wasn't, I'd always thought of myself actually as vulnerable and messy and very emotional. And hearing that view of myself challenged, even though it was an entirely false view, frankly, I really liked. So I think there were certain people I would open up to and sometimes I would, because I couldn't help it, I'd go around to a friend's house and my my best mate, Jane, you know, Goldman, I would just go around there and because I feel safe and her family are like my family, they'd be sitting there and I'd just stop sobbing. And they just all hugged me. It was really lovely, actually, the whole family. This is pre-COVID, everyone. But Jane's husband, Jonathan, and the kids, there was one, I remember it very vividly being in the kitchen. No one said anything. I just started crying. It makes me quite emotional now remembering it and they've probably forgotten it. But the impact that had, I felt so sort of held and loved. But we're all individuals and you're alone with your thoughts at night, you know. And I would sometimes, after my sister died and then my parents and then a relationship broke up at the, at the same time quite, and I wasn't expecting it to. And I think it just became, uh, there were these multiple losses. It just felt like the world had just shifted on its axis. And I was just like, well, what next? I, and I did start to really sort of, just question what the point was you know I would think well what's the point because this is just going to keep happening there is there's no nothing is certain nothing I can't count on anything that's what I felt and that feeling of which is so narcissistic in some ways because it was my my poor family who died but you do feel I've been left you know and and if you're a bit of, um, if abandonment issues is kind of your kink anyway, <laughs> I think that just goes, or you're almost psychotic with kind of grief and fear. I don't think that sounds narcissistic. I, and, and if anyone who hasn't read the book, the bit where the relationship breaks up, I was almost did an audible gasp. It is, it's, it's shocking and it's a lot. And, and having gone through all you had, that's, that's too much for anyone. But I, I was interested reading that the book is almost a love letter to your friendship with Jane Goldman as well. And so when you write about times where you still felt you were perhaps unlovable is a, is a term you use, and it's something that I have also struggled with in therapy, I, I wonder 
was it not enough other people telling you how you were loved to to sort of get through that that deep-rooted fear or sense that you had in your head do you know I think it, it is now and it really means a lot to me now and you know I do feel very lucky to have that but I think when at that point I don't think I'd quite evolved so much and I think I'd lived my whole life according to um, what I was projecting outwards, really, rather than what I was feeling inside. And it's very hard to break that down. And for, in my case, it took multiple losses and a lot of therapy, you know, that everything was about how stuff appeared for me. So it didn't matter how much love I got, how much people told me I was lovable. I just I just never felt it. And I think with the it was with the losses, I almost started to think, well, of course people leave you because if you're not lovable, then you get left, don't you? And oddly, it sort of reinforces that that view. You know, it takes work to come back from that. And I definitely, the Samaritans were incredible. I would call them and they were phenomenal. Just listening, knowing nothing about me, but just listening, it was incredible. I managed to pick myself up, but I have a lot of sympathy. You know, when I read about, I know a lot of people when um, Lee McQueen, when Alexander McQueen died and people were saying, it's, you know, his mother died and someone said, oh, people's parents die. And and I thought, you don't understand. You've not been through it. How low you can get, how grief can, just, you just feel like you're so in the pit of despair, don't you? And so, yeah, it was a tr- it was a really tough period. I remember that period a lot. And I'm not sure if you've had similar periods, Helen. I don't know if you've reached out to organisations like that, but I'd recommend it. Yeah, have you? Well, for me, so the Lullaby Trust are a great charity that Adam Kay works with and um, they support families who have lost a child through sudden infant death syndrome, which is what my sister died from. And so I've spoken to them a bit and I've spoken to a lot of therapists over the years. and, And so, yeah, hugely hugely helpful I don't think I could have done it on my own and so I feel very passionate that I would really love everyone to be able to have someone to talk to it it's it does feel like a privilege and it shouldn't it should just be that we all have that access so yeah things like the Samaritans things like the Lullaby Trust are hugely hugely helpful and I know for you as well the dog family thing and this idea of almost reframing it that you could you could do that by yourself you talk about having a list of things that you wanted to be part of your life moving forward. And one of them was decorating your house how you wanted it. And another one was, was getting the dog and, and the house thing. I really get as well the idea of having the confidence to say, this is my space. This is going to be mine. And then having something you're choosing. I'm going to care for this rather than being a part of someone else's life. You're thinking this is going to be the life I create for myself. I wonder how important that was to making you feel I guess centered in a way I think it was very much to do with suddenly realizing after I did this thing called the Hoffman process which I found hugely beneficial to me and it's a intensive I mean you sort of have to look it up you know I'm reluctant to call it it's not group therapy because they're very as they say you know it's not actually therapy it's more just about change really and working with other people and being inspired by them but it it just it's centered around destroying patterns that you've possibly that p- human beings get into and you do examine your sort of family structure a bit and 
It's a course, sometimes it's seven days, sometimes it's 10 days. I did it and it was utterly life-changing for me. It really was. And I, and I really recommend it to people. And it is, you know, people have said to me, well, look, is it quite expensive? It's not cheap. But for me, I don't drink anymore. I don't drink alcohol. And I just thought, right, well, what I would have spent on wine or going out, I'm just going to, that's how I did it. That's a good way of looking yeah. at it, budget. But, yes. it, you know, I appreciate it is expensive and it's it's not an option for everyone. But I, I was fortunate in that it was at that time. So I did it and it was hugely transformative. It had a massive impact on my life. And I think one of the things that, really I learned from it was this whole thing about being authentic and they teach you how to sort of just stand by your own individual passions and beliefs and to be your own person essentially that that's part of it is that even in conversation and I've probably done it a thousand times during this conversation but you start with this premise of constantly saying you I was like, what are you talking about? Semantics, yeah. Yeah. I'd say, well, when you do this, I, 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 and I'm really, I still do it because it's impossible not to. But I am more conscious of it and I do hear it in other people when I hear them constantly using the word you, when they're, what they're actually doing is stating their own beliefs about something it's it's a way of sort of disconnecting yourself from your own opinions and, and passing them off as someone else's. You're throwing it back to other people. So instead of saying, you wouldn't want to do that, it's, I do not want to do that, you know? So all that was quite useful. But I think, yeah, I just suddenly decided, actually, my house was part of that in a way that I realised I'd been a bit of a white waller, as Catherine Ryan calls them. She thinks those are the worst people alive. She was saying things like, I can't believe I've got, she was renting a flat out. And she went, I've got a white waller. He's making me take down the florals. And I had been a white waller. I think I had been, I'd sort of been terrified. It's that Alfred Prufrock thing. Dare I, whatever it is, you know, dare I do this, dare I eat a peach or, you know, it was very much, I didn't want to put my impact on anything. What if someone came round? What if someone hated my cushions? What if they were a bit five years ago? Terrified is a big word for that, isn't it? Oh, I was terrified. I was. Ter- I didn't invite people around. I was so scared of what they'd say. I mean, all that's gone now. I mean, my place now is looks like, I always say it's a mixture. It's a bit of whatever happened to baby Jane. There's a bit of Miss Havisham. All those things I feared people would say. I now feel, bring it on. I think Catherine Ryan's very good on that in you know, around glitter room, this idea of I want a pink wall. I shall have a pink wall. <laughs> But I wonder if there's something about having always played a role. It's hard to know, and I'll I'll try and use I instead of you, but it's hard to know what I like. It's hard to know what I would want my space to look like because I've been doing stuff for other people for as long as I can remember. That's that's a hard thing to to sort of have the confidence to, to put on your big girl pants and, yeah, get out there. Yeah, I, I definitely, it's re- I really struggled with it. I mean... I think it's partly to do with the structure. I keep using this word structure. Again, like there was a structure. The environment I grew up in where because we sort of behave like actors just pitching up at people's houses, performing, we were going back to the sort of shitty dressing room. It didn't matter what our existence was like. And again, it's that we were seeming rather than being in a sense. 
So I think for me, it's become, I've had to, I've had to really fight that. I've had to really fight that tendency to slightly dismiss my own beliefs or opinions or needs or wants. You know, I have to fight it every time I write an email. I have to force myself not to use qualifiers and say, just checking in, just thought, I just wondered if. And I know that's something I've researched a lot about the what I call the I just wondered if syndrome. And that is a female thing. Women tend to do that more, I think, because in our defence, traditionally, we've been punished for not apologising <laughs> sufficiently. You know, we get called pushy, bossy, nasty woman. Actually, I really have to, I find that very difficult. You know, and what I do, how I do that is by, actually, I have some good role models who I notice sometimes, um, you know, James Goldman's uh, partner, Jonathan Ross, we have this thing where I'll say, read me an email that you sent recently. <laughs> I mean, it sounds a bit Ooh, weird. Interesting, but... yeah. And he's great, Jonathan. He says, I said, read me an email where you've said no about something. He's a great role model because Jonathan's an example of someone who's probably one of the best-liked people in the entertainment business. You'll never hear a bad word about him. That's not true of everyone, but you'll never hear anyone say anything bad about him. And I think what's interesting about it is that he's also brutally honest. You know, he's not someone who wants to be liked or has the need to be liked. He'll say, look at this. Sometimes he sends... Well, I'm, like, laughing. I think, I can't believe you said that. He'll say, no, don't want to do that. Thank you. And it's it's taken me a long time, Helen, to realise the reason he's liked and the reason he's so popular is because everyone knows where they stand with him. You know, there's no sense of, there's no hypocrisy, there's no fakery, there's no sense of him being an inauthentic person. That's huge, I think. I love the idea of an email that says no, just saying no. Oh, once <laughs> he sent one, he showed me, where it was like someone had sent this long thing to him, I think his agent, and he just sent a thumbs down emoji. <laughs> You can't behave like that. And he finds it hilarious because Jane and I, who have been so sort of brainwashed to do with the, you know, the time when we grew up and we were conditioned by mothers who were conditioned like this to a degree as well, were that, oh, I do, I'm so sorry, I do apologise for disturbing you. I just thought I'd ask, if it's a problem, no worries. Yes, waffle. Mm -hmm. Do you do that? Yes, I do a lot of polite waffle, yeah. <laughs> You could almost just cut the first and last sentence of any <laughs> any missive I ever send. Yeah, it's terrible. It's really bad. I could talk to you for hours, but I do need to talk about Ray. We have oh. to talk about Ray. So you became a dog family. Oh, look at him. His, I mean, he's. I know you say he's he's part Ewok, but he almost doesn't look like a dog. He's just a sort of beautiful creature all of his own. At the moment, he's got a rather strange sort of bob, hasn't he? He looks a bit like Anna Wintour at the moment. Yes, he does. He's very fashion week. <laughs> Respect to Ray. So, yes, dogs, we all know sort of scientific benefits of dogs and oxytocin and gets you out for a walk. And, but it helps you live in the present as well, I feel like dogs are good for. There's a step to sort of make your own, write your own story almost and write your own happy ending and get a dog. And that, that seems like a sort of huge one. And it, it seems to have made a massive impact on your life is that is that fair oh definitely I mean I again I don't think I quite realized what an impact Ray would have on my life until he came into my life and when I decided to get Ray 
as I mentioned in the book, my sister had had a dog and I always felt that was the full stop on her life. Little did I know it really wasn't. The full stop was going to be a proper full stop and it was going to come horribly soon. But it just felt like that had completed their family setup. You know, she had the two kids and they had this beautiful dog that they called Mr Giggle. And that had always been very important to my sister, I think, because we didn't have that family structure and we couldn't have dogs because we were always on boats or planes or trains and my parents wouldn't have walked it. They probably would have forgotten we had a dog. They just would, it would have ended in disaster. So I see now why that was so important to my sister. It was everything that we didn't have in a way. It was reliability, it was security, it was waking up and hearing the neighbour next door, their gate closing at the same time as they go off to work and you know they're going to be back at six and the dog will be in the window panting, you know. I decided I'd found Mr Giggle, my sister's dog, incredibly therapeutic and, and calming and just really lovely to spend time with after my sister died. And I was really conscious that he was aware she'd gone. And I discovered this whole thing about dogs, which again, I, I do mention in the book, but I discovered about how dogs mourn, which I found very moving, that dogs don't mourn like humans. They don't ever quite give up on the idea that the person might come home. Oh. So when you see them, you know, Giggle would be outside my sister's bedroom and what they're thinking, they don't think that person's gone. They're not experiencing loss. They've, they experience what they sort of sustained uh, waiting. They just think, well, surely they'll come back at some point. So, but all that was fascinating and all the, the calming effect, I didn't realise there were, as you say, real scientific benefits to that, just the act of stroking a dog. I decided to get Ray for all those reasons, but also it felt like I needed to bring joy into my life. And I hadn't been very good at doing that. I'd experienced other people's joy and I'd allowed, you know, I'd watched my friends' weddings and ha they'd have their kids and they'd go on holidays and I, would, I was sort of the witness, you know, to all these things. But I felt it was time, like, like my space, making my space, you know, lovely. Getting the dog, it was like, this is for me and he's going to be part of my life. And then I went with my... Um, niece Mimi to pick him up and we decided to call him Raymond because I like the idea for a couple of reasons I like the idea of him having a name like he was a character in the Sweeney maybe I like those sort of names and like an old man 70s name yeah like Nigel the dog yeah, I love those I like, well the best name I ever heard Helen was when I was doing my podcast I was interviewing um, Nihal Athanayaka actually uh, the radio presenter and we were walking near his house and there was this very respectable elderly woman and she had her I think she had a boxer and she just went, come on, Jeff, don't be silly. Oh. I thought, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff. And it was clearly nice. totally non-ironic, which is why I liked it. It wasn't a sort of trendy Hoxton thing. She just liked the name Jeff. And so Raymond it was, and it was a, a gentle nod to my sister as well, who we called Ray, and I thought it'd be nice for the girls. So, yeah. And since then, I just can't imagine life without him. He really helps. You know, with sadness... And I know you're, I was going to say you're a fan of sadness. I know. <laughs> I love the stuff. No, but I know you're quite pro experiencing sadness rather than dodging it. And that's sort of what I love about dogs is there's no judgment. That I will sit there crying. I mean, really crying. And often when I cry, uh, just in case anyone's interested, I sometimes like to squat on the floor. Like I'll lean against, oh. I get on the floor, I do floor cries. 
I don't know what that's about. I think it's probably about curling up in a ball or feeling childlike. Just, you know, I just like to sit on the floor when I cry. I don't know why that is. My floor's very clean. But I feel he just sits with me and looks at me and he licks me. And there's no pull yourself together. Not that my friends do this, would ever do this. I don't have friends like that because I don't hang out with sort of Nigel Farage and Piers Morgan. But, <laughs> you know, my friends are very compassionate, but equally sometimes that's ray in a way is not that dissimilar to the samaritans <laughs> bear with me bear with me samaritans bear with me samaritans because the role he's fulfilling is a compassionate witness who isn't necessarily trying to fill the space so you know what i mean by that that i am aware that when you're consoling someone you want to talk if they're upset are you okay what happened don't worry and what the Samaritans provide, it's not total silence. What they provide, though, what they give you is space. They don't fill in your sentences. They don't rush to make it OK. They just listen. And in some ways, that's very similar to what I feel you get from a dog. They're just, they're witnesses. But they give you space to sort of process it yourself. Yes, I think that's a really good point. They don't try and fix anything. They don't try and fix it. They're not solution-driven dogs, particularly not Raymond. Mainly snack driven. <laughs> well, if anything, that's the thing. And those basics of life, I know in Ricky Gervais's show, Afterlife, that's something he covers, which is, I love that detail, that the dog is what sort of keeps him going because he thinks, I've got to feed the dog. And I felt that sometimes. And I've had a tough day. It's like, oh, we've got to get up because that, that would feel cruel and raise, you know, dogs don't have long lives. And I'm really conscious that he doesn't have as long as the rest of us assume we're going to get. And and you need to make that his life count because it's only a short life. That's lovely. So you want to make it good. Well, I sometimes think, Helen, imagine if you treated people like that, you know, and none of us do because it's really hard. We can't make that, our thoughts can't leap in that way when we're sort of angry or hurt or upset. But I think with Ray, you know, every time I think I don't want to, oh, I can't be bothered to walk him, it's raining or I'll feed him later. I just think, oh, no, this is it's a responsibility and I'm looking after him. I'm caring for him and I have to make his time here happy. Yeah, that's a lovely way to look at it. And and what else? The last couple of questions I like to ask, what else helps you now when you experience loss or disappointment? I still, you know, it's it's a it's a sort of ongoing process, isn't it? Because. I think for me, I am much more likely to be accepting of it now. I think when I experience, when I feel sadness, I tend to treat it like a house guest. I just think, oh, this has arrived. Okay, well, this tends to stay for a few days, so I'm just going to get through this. But I can't get rid of it, so it's absolutely pointless because that's a waste of both of our energies. So it's not a house guest I was particularly looking forward to coming, but you know what, we'll find a way. We'll watch some box sets together and we'll both go our separate ways. So I've oddly found it, and I say oddly, maybe there's science behind this, I don't know, but the more I've accepted it, it's a bit like when you're having an injection or dental work, they tell you don't tense. You know, the worst thing you can do is tense because it makes it the pain worse. And I've sort of tried to apply that to sadness that I feel the more... I welcome it in. Not welcome. I'm not sitting around saying, "Great, I'm gonna, ha I'm gonna be crying for three days." But 
the, the more I don't struggle and I don't fear it, it sort of feels like it's, uh, it's less of an issue somehow. It passes more quickly as well, I think, as well. Do you think so? Yeah, no, then there's studies showing that, yeah, if we resist it, it'll tend to either last for longer or pop up when we are least expecting it. So that seems like a good plan. And I know in that TED Talk I've mentioned, I always do compare it to you learn something. You you always come out of one of those periods when you've been down, when you've, you know, been sad. You always come out feeling instructed in some way or it's like a reboot of your phone, isn't it? It's like when you clean out all your emails or you just think, oh, yeah, I'm fresher now. I needed that. <laughs> and I always think about crying. Again, I look back on my early work life and I really hope this changes for young women now and men and everyone. I really hope this changes that this fear of crying, that people's attitude towards crying. I remember there was a do you remember that book? There was some woman who worked in fashion PR who was utterly terrifying Who in America who wrote a book called If You, if you Have to Cry at Work, Go Outside. And you think what's so strange is that people get so angry about crying and there's, it's seen as the worst crime, isn't it? She cried at work. No one will respect you. And I think, well, there are people who throw sort of phones at walls and express anger. Or, and, or people. Yeah. yeah, that seems to be okay that we've accepted that anger seems to be far more acceptable in the workplace than sadness. And I think, well, crying just affects me. If I'm in the toilet, what concern is it of yours? But if you're angry, you're ruining everyone's day. And yet no one writes a book called If You Have to Be Angry at Work, Go Outside. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so problematic. The whole sort of hydraulic theory of emotion whereby it's okay to vent if you feel angry and it's such a gendered thing as well isn't it that boys are taught it's okay to be angry and girls are taught not anger for you yeah. yeah I think I do hope the sadness is changing I feel as though perhaps more so for women it's getting more accepted to cry in the workplace but yeah you're, you're right there's often a lot of apology for it and that's not helpful yeah so I'll sometimes say and actually it's good because I work with I do a radio show obviously with um my friend Frank Skinner and he's great like not long ago I'd come in on a Saturday morning and he knows me so well and he could tell I was slightly out of sorts and I had been having a cry actually the night. I hadn't had a great night just for various reasons and he just said, he said, are you all right? He'll check in. That's how he does it. And I said, I said, yeah, I'll be fine for the show. And Frank said, I'm not asking about the show. Are you all right? Which was lovely. And uh, and then, of course, he made a frank joke and said, although it is nice to know you're going to be OK for the show. <laughs> no, but he's, and then I said, no, I'm fine. I said, this is what I need. Being Doing the show this morning is exactly what I need. And he said, OK, good. But, you know, I'm here and I feel so lucky to work with someone like that who just checks in on you. He did exactly the right thing, because if he'd have he didn't prod, he didn't say, no, what is it? What is it? But yeah, I tend to, with sadness, I just, I let it in, accept that it's a house guest that's not going to be here forever. And then I send it on its way when it's ready. And like I say, sometimes, generally these days, if I'm sad, I can always trace it back. It's always my sister, Helen, always at the heart of everything, really. That's because nothing will ever make me, could ever make me cry again after that in the way that that would. So it always comes down to that. And then that, that's how I sort of deal with it, because I say, well, actually, that's just a reminder in, you know, of her and the legacy she left. 
and she deserves to be remembered. And if that's with tears, I'm okay with that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. What a place to end. Emily Dean, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.